know, I have a, a really good friend, and um, most of you probably don't know him, but protect his identity. We'll just call him Steve. And Steve, if you're to look at who he is and his career path and who he is, he is one of the most mature men I've ever met. He is an extremely educated person. He is, um, he is a person of extraordinary education, actually. He is a person that is actually has, a, when I look at his resume, uh, I just look at it and think, wow, what, look at all the things he has accomplished. Not only that, just looking at who he is and what he's done on paper, I'm often amazed at when I talk to this person, just the, the wondrous Christ-like heart this man has, Steve. I've gotten to know him quite well. I've been with him throughout his career path through his, and, and talked with him in his struggles with his family. And you look at this person, you would think, man, this is a person who should be the most secure person in the world. He's got intellect. He's got discipline. He's got an incredible resume. But yet being on the inside of his heart, so to speak, I also know that Steve has a lot of issues. And the number one issue he struggles with is is feeling like he's not enough. Now I look back at this man as Steve and saying, how on earth could you know that? Now he's a Christian, he knows the gospel. But yet he still struggles with that reality. My life doesn't have enough meaning. My life doesn't have enough purpose. I haven't done enough. Now, part of that goes back to family backgrounds. As many of us, we understand the woundedness of family, the longing to have maybe a father figure affirm us and how that can play into things. But within us, my observation is almost everybody has some sense in which they deeply struggle with those feelings of inadequacy and failure, those things that we long to find a security in. Maybe for you, it's as a parent, you struggle to feel as a parent, you know, that you've just failed. And maybe the whole rest of the world looks at you and, and thinks that your, your kids are amazing, but there's something within you that makes you feel like they're a failure. You're a failure. Maybe one of them doesn't know Christ or hasn't come to know the gospel yet. Maybe a kid's made out of, you may have six kids and one of them's made some pretty bad decisions and you sit there and question yourself, is it because of me? Is it because of what I have done? Maybe it's because in your job, you've looked at your job and you've thought, oh, I've tried so hard to provide for my family, but yet it just doesn't seem enough. Or maybe you're looking at twilight, in the twilight years of retirement and you're looking at it and you're thinking, what has always been promised to you to be the best years of your life in retirement, you're looking at it and saying, I have no sense of self in this place of retirement. Maybe it's money. Maybe in the pursuit of keeping up with the Joneses, you've never felt like you've been able to provide enough for your family. Maybe it's character. You beat yourself up over and over again from mistakes of the past. And no matter what you do today, you can't let go of the guilt of past mistakes within there. Now, many of us think within all of those different scenarios, and we look at other people and say, maybe if our life just had this, if we just had this, if, my, if I had this different job, 
Maybe if I traded my career in which I'm pursuing money for a career of teaching, for example, I would finally be happy. And of course, if you talk to a lot of the teachers today, they would say, yeah, happiness isn't always what I, uh, um, what they always, the way they describe their job, post, especially post-pandemic. Certainly, a lot of them will say they feel very fulfilled and do uh, uh, love the kids, but there's difficulties there. Or maybe you may even say, well, I gave myself to this very aspirational career. If I just went out and found money, if I just was able to provide, man, that sure would have made, my life would be so much easier. I'd have that itch within me fulfilled. Maybe some of you say, you know, if we were just more financially responsible, or maybe if we just had more money. I look at this, this other couple, they don't have the financial stresses. It doesn't seem like they're living paycheck to paycheck like I do. Or maybe you think, man, if I could just get my act together as a mom or as a dad, if my family could get fixed, or maybe if my family could expand, then that gaping hole within me would be okay. One of the things I've observed in my years of ministry, and I've ministered in a lot of different contexts. I've ministered in in some areas where it's very rural and the people are very blue-collar and of very meager means. I've seen and interacted with many internationals, though I've never had a full-time ministry in international ministry. I've interacted with enough to see people who are very much in extreme, what we'd call extreme poverty. And I've also ministered in very affluent areas where people are very white-collar, extremely educated, and frankly had almost an embarrassment of riches. And what I have found throughout each and every one of those contexts What is universal is that same sense of tragedy and that same sense of a gaping hole of looking for something, that lack of fulfillment, that sense in which they long for another sense of identity that they're trying to reach for. And that's true for many people like my friend who really passionately believes the gospel, but he still struggles. He still struggles in his identity. The truth is, there is nothing in this world that will, that will insulate you from tragedy, that will insulate you, that will make you feel fully secure. Yesterday in the World Relief Training, one of the, one of the um, um, activities we had to do as a way to try to help us step in and be able to empathize with some of the refugees. And so we had all these different things that we put that were important to us and we had to turn them down. And ultimately, they began taking all these different things. And some of these things were pretty, pretty emotionally anchored to us. Things like my wife and my kids. And they began just taking them from us forcefully. And it was pretty emotional. You felt very violated by the end, even though it's just a piece of paper. And then we, at the end, we, we turned the things around to just see what was left. And, and, and as I began turning things around, uh, my heart began to beat a little bit faster. It's like, oh, yes, my wife is still with me. And then I turned another piece of paper. It's, oh, oh good, one of my kids is still with me. And I began turning another piece of paper. Uh-oh, one of my kids is gone. And that was a little destabilizing in that moment. 
But here's the thing. I, I thought, oh, thank goodness I'm not in that situation. But then I remembered this. Tomorrow, God could call one of my sons away from me. Through a disease, through a car accident, or some other means. Even though I don't have the instability of a refugee, nothing in this life is secure except for God alone. It could be removed from me like that. We look and we try to find places of solace and security in this world, but they just leave us wanting more. Wanting more. And that is in many ways the message of Samuel. This book of Samuel is a writer probably writing in, um, in the exile. Babylon is conquered. Jerusalem and he's looking, much like the gospel writer of Luke, who had go and did thorough investigation and did research, historical research, and moved through the power and the inspiration of God, wrote the inerrant book of the gospel of Luke. This writer of Samuel writes, and he's looking through the histories and the prophetic writings of Samuel and other prophets, and putting it all together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he gives us an account not to give a history of Israel in the kings, but his ultimate purpose is to call people to who are wondering, who are feeling disoriented and wondering, where can I hope? The temple's been destroyed. We've been removed from Babylon. All right, we've been moved to Babylon. And he's calling them to put their hope in a redeemer who had come from God. A redeemer who we ultimately know is Jesus Christ. And it begins in many ways with a microchasm of that story. Just as Israel in this time, and keep in mind in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Samuel actually follows the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, there's what we see is these kind of these different clans that come together and there's a lot of dysfunction and there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it ends with all kinds of violence and oppression, including and especially violence and oppression to women. And there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the people were longing for something, for God and his mercy to intervene. And as somewhat of a microchasm of the larger hope and the longing for Israel, you find a woman who is hurting, who is longing for something, a woman by the name of Hannah. And so we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Verses 1 through 2. And there was a certain man, Ramatham Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zulf. And he was an Ephrathite. He had two wives, and the name of the one was Hannah, and then the name of the other was Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, many of you are wondering, did I get all those pronunciations right? And the answer is, of course I am, did. I'm the one with the microphone. So, <laughs> just assume I had it right, okay? <laughs> 
But in this context, what we see is first off, and keep in mind, this is the context of the judges, the time in which there was a great vacuum of spiritual leadership. And the spiritual leadership, what we see is a man uh, by the name of Elkanah. Now, Elkanah already, by the fact that he's mentioned, and we see in, in one of the book of Chronicles, we have his genealogy, he's probably man of some importance of that day, probably of somewhat of an uh, aristocracy within there. And, so, and, and we also see that he has two wives. Now, that immediately raises a little bit of concern in us. Wait a minute. Why does he have two wives? Now, keep in mind, the Bible never endorses polygamy. And in fact, it always shows that whenever it pops up, chaos, dysfunction, and conflict ensue. And so it, it rather, it, it doesn't tell, it shows that it's a difficult and bad situation. However, you might say, well, well why would Elkanah do it? We have to keep in mind, it was an extremely different situation in society back then where everything revolved around agriculture. And the more kids you had who worked, uh, the more ultimate stability, income, and ultimately through that status you had. And so having children was extraordinarily important. And so sometimes if, when you see the presence of two wives, it was sometimes because one of the wives was not able to have children. And so they would have another wife uh, in order to continue to have uh, children in order to, uh, for the inheritance rights to have an heir within there. Doesn't mean it was right. I'm just saying that's what had happened. And it wasn't because necessarily Alcana was a, a, just this lusty guy who wanted to have as many wives as he could get. It was probably more, in fact, what you see, it was most likely an economic thing. Okay. But right off the bat, we see there's something not right in River City. We see he did have two wives, and unfortunately, it says Hannah had no children. Now, if any of you have ministered or been around someone who has struggled with infertility, you know what a horrific, heartbreaking, gut-wrenching um, ordeal that is. It's, it is deeply hard and traumatic and we should always remember that be sensitive to that and pray for for families who struggle with that now obviously god gives hope through a lot of different ways and means but as traumatic as it is in our day and age it was even more so back during this time because unfortunately and this is not ideal this isn't biblical but this is just the way the culture worked women's so much of the it was an honor shame society and their honor came from their ability to have children, for them producing children and heirs. And if they didn't have children, that was considered deeply, deeply shameful for them. Not only was it shameful for them throughout society, it actually deeply it put them in a very insecure place. Because what would happen is women who didn't have children, number one, and this was not biblical, this was cultural, a lot of times in that culture, that men would then divorce that wife for not producing a hair. Hair. So that latest insecurity there. The other thing, keep in mind, if they did not have a son, if her, their husband died, they had no source of income. Women couldn't necessarily own property. They had no source of security. There was no social security. There was no 401ks. Your 401ks were your children. And she had none, no security at all. 
And so she was in a very difficult place. And what we find is, in this place, she was also, she was suffering mightily, but she was also being oppressed, verse 3. Now this man, that's Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophini and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now, one of the things, first things that we see right here is we show that Elkanah was a very pious person. We don't know what feast this was. It may have been the Feast of Tabernacles, or it could have just been a family feast. But that shows two things. Number one, he was deeply pious. And in many ways, that shows in contrast to three characters that were just listed. We'll, we'll talk about them more in future sermons. But Eli, Hafini, and Phineas. Now, we're going to find out that those, especially the two sons, they were somewhat, not somewhat, they were very suspect characters within there. But Elkanah and his family would come, and then and it says, and, on the, and they went to Shiloh. Now, keep in mind, this is before... Number one, David had established Jerusalem as the capital of the country. Um, Jerusalem was not really an Israeli city at this time. The Ark of the Covenant was not brought into Jerusalem. It was at Shiloh. The tabernacle of meeting was at Shiloh. And it seems like they'd erected it as some sort of um, semi-permanent structure, the tabernacle there. And so you see, Eli was the high priest, so that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. So they would make these pilgrimages to the place that represented God's presence there at Shiloh. Now, and on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to uh, Penina, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. So right off, we see that while Hannah is struggling with uh, a lack of children, Elkanah really isn't. We see his first wife actually, his quiver is actually quite full. Apparently he has a number of children, both men, men, male heirs and daughters as well. Notice what it says. He would give the portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. So when they would offer the sacrifice, there were some sacrifices that were whole burnt sacrifices. So in other words, you put it on the sacrifice and you, everything was just put on the fire you didn't do anything. But a lot of sacrifices that you would put it on the altar, the priest would get a portion of it, and then you would take a lot of it and you would divvy it out to your family or to your friends or whoever it may be. And that's what this particular sacrifice was. But he says, but then, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So in other words, it's still showing that Elkanah deeply loved and cared for Hannah. This wasn't someone who favored the other wife. He deeply loved her. And so when he distributed the meat, he gave her a double portion and singled her out. And her rival noticed that the second wife was not some sort of sister wife. It says she was a rival used to provoke her uh, grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Now, that word provoke there is a very strong word, and I believe it's here is the only place in the Hebrew Bible where it actually refers to a person. Mostly, it talks about a storm. And so, in other words, she was, she was so harassed, so oppressed, that she was stormy mad. This wasn't a gentle nubbing. And so it went on year by year. She went up to the house of the Lord. She used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? 
Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And so she's not able to eat. She's, not, she's deeply disturbed, even though her husband is giving her this big portion. So imagine the, the husband gave this big gift, and the, the wife is still distraught. And he does what all men do. What's wrong with you? Why are you sad? Why do you need this thing? I, look, aren't I better than anything else you could get, baby? <laughs> now, here in the South, in Texas, we say, Oh, Elkanah, bless your heart. Bless your heart. Outside of the South, we'd say, Elkanah, you dope. There's a tremendous amount of arrogance that's here, right? There's an insensitivity, but there's also an insensitivity to the shame that she feels culturally. Insensitivity to the fact that he wants, there's almost kind of a codependency here. It's like, just depend on me. I'm all you need. I'm all you should want. Deeply unhealthy. Deeply, frankly, insensitive. But the text does make clear it wasn't because he didn't care. Maybe it's because he's just a guy, but he, he, he loved. He loved his wife. And we find something happens in the midst of this. And of course, no matter what he says, are my not good as you ten sons, keep in mind he could die like that and she would have no security. Verse 9. And after they had eaten, drunk, and sought Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now there's something in the Hebrew there that seems like there's a little bit of a change. There's rose. There's something very intentional within there. And now Eli the priest was, seat, was on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Now I just want to highlight something and just put it in your brain. That word seat there, that's a fine translation, but that could also be translated throne. Just keep that in mind. Just follow that in the back. And it talks about he being in the temple. The temple, there was no temple at this time. Another word for temple could be palace. Just file that back in your brain. Okay? And she was weeping. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. What is she doing there? She is going all in. She is not holding anything back. She is weeping bitterly. She is taking the full rage of her emotions to God. And she vowed a vow saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and will remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, what is that referring to? That's referring to a Nazarite vow that comes from the book of Numbers. A Nazarite vow, so keep in mind, only priests were able to serve into the house of the Lord, Right? And so, but the Nazarite vow was a way for a person to at least temporarily consecrate themselves for the service of the Lord. And so most people just would take on a vow for a short period of time. However, we see that Samuel was one for his whole life would take on this Nazarite vow. Samson was another one. Um, And then, of course, John the Baptist was another future one, kind of a, a future Samuel, so to speak. So this kind of foreshadows even John the Baptist later on. And he says, I'm going to give you to him. 
Verse 12. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved. And her voice was not heard. And therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And he said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, this poor woman, she's misunderstood by her husband. And now she's misunderstood by this priest. Now, what we're going to see is this is actually very much foreshadowing Eli. Because his big problem is blindness. He is spiritually, his spiritual discernment is blind. And so as a priest, rather than being able to recognize genuine, pious faith, he mistakes it for drunkenness. Now, you might ask, why would he assume there was a drunken woman at the temple? File that back in your brain, okay? That'll be important in a few weeks. Why, why would he assume there was a drunken woman? And why is Hannah so defensive? Don't take me for one of those people. And so she says, Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Notice she's able to understand what she's been doing. I have been pouring out my soul. Do not regard your servants as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And the words she used there are often sometimes words that we see there used in other places in the Hebrew Bible for people who are deeply depressed. She is overwhelmed with grief. Eli sees us, he's here, and finally he's able to see clearly. Finally he's able to do what he was supposed to be doing. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Now, he is not necessarily prophesying here, okay? This isn't, he's saying, he's not saying this is going to happen. He's just saying, go in peace. Know that the Lord has heard you. And I, and I pray that he grants your request. This isn't a promise. And she isn't necessarily taking it as such. And she said to him, let your servant find favor in your eyes, Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So what you see is having that comfort and that response from someone to remind her, the Lord has heard you. He hears you and he he sees you. Without the knowledge of what God would do, she was encouraged. Verse 19. And then they arose early morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Now, when you see the Lord, the, the, the Hebrew word there is very rich word in Old Testament. It doesn't mean that, oh, wait a minute, I forgot about this person I remembered. Whenever you see that, it's always a word for God's action towards somebody. In other words, he looked upon the person and acted upon it, right? What you see throughout the Hebrew Bible is, is people forget God remembers, Okay, And so he remembered her, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called the name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him of the Lord. And the man Elkanah and his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell forever." And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. What does that mean? Well, there's debate about it. It could be the Lord, basically a way of him saying the Lord's will be done. 
It could also be, and this is what I'm inclined to believe, mostly because I like it, if I'm being honest, it's him saying, no matter what the actions of the humans do, God's will will be done. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up along with her and along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Now, how, how young? Probably three years. It could have been as young as two, but probably three years old. And she brings, and this is a very expensive, very extravagant sacrifice. So what you see here is Hannah's not dealing with material poverty. What she came to expose, what came to expose in her was a poverty of spirit. A recognition that the things of this world were not what was going to give her hope. And they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli and she said to him, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in the presence praying to the Lord. For this child, I pray, the Lord has granted me the petition that I made him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. Now, some of you may be bothered. Why did she say lent? Why not just say he's the Lord? The Hebrew there is a play in word. Um, The word lent there is a strong word uh, play with the word petition. That's the reason that word is used. It could even mean asked. And um, so it says, the Lord, therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Now, keep in mind, what we see here is a woman who is looking for a hope. A woman who is looking for hope, looking for God in something. What was exposed within her was actually poverty of spirit. And what this teaches on a very human level, on a very lower story level, is what, what became, what enabled, or I shouldn't say what enabled, what God used in her life was her poverty or spirit. It wasn't her resources, it wasn't her wealth, it was her poverty of spirit. There's also, she, why does the story begin this way? Because this is a microchasm of the Samuel, this one who would be born, be one who would ultimately usher in hope, would be the the one who would help transition from the time of judges to the time of a king. As the people long for spiritual leadership, Samuel would become the one. So the people of Israel who were there were people who were poor in spirit, crying out to God. We see God is actually not just providing to Hannah, but to the people of Israel as well. But keep in mind, this is written in Babylon. It's a call for God's people to trust in their poverty of their spirit to long for God's Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so it is for us as well. On all those different levels, it is a reminder for us of who God is. That what he is calling us to do is to be people who not take identity in the things that we have, 
but in people who are poor in spirit, but have who call out and depend on the God who is sovereign and has a, a, a bottomless treasure chest of glory and provision. I don't mean that in a material standpoint, but rather his redemption is our riches. His power to save is what will fulfill us. And so what we see is this teaches us always is that God uses the crucible of hardship to train our hearts to rest in him. God uses the crucible of hardship to train our hearts to rest in him. It is in this place that he teaches us to be poor in spirit. And this isn't about necessarily material poverty. The recognizing, no matter where you are in your poverty spectrum, to realize that as a human being, in our frailty, in our needness, in our finite, who we are, hope only comes from being poor in spirit. People who look to God and His provision alone. You see, the thing is, what we see here is, even within Hannah, there are these multiple false idols that come into play. Multiple false idols that even though this is written thousand years before us, we can still get. We can still struggle with. We can still, we have those same idols. We see what is one of the idols to define honor amongst our peers, define our identity in our family. There's even the, I, the, the, the siren's call of finding your identity in romance. If I just had a spouse who just loved me so deeply, I'd feel happy and fulfilled. It's a good thing. But that's not what's going to ultimately... You can be the most lo- have the most loving spouse in the world, but God's still calling you to be poor in spirit. Change and hope isn't going to come from your job, from changing your situations, your finances. doesn't mean God doesn't care about those things. And certainly Hannah is going to God with her needs. But in the midst of it, what she is finding out is the need to be poor in spirit. And we struggle with those same things. The second thing that we see, the third thing that we should see, I should say, is God both sees and he remembers. That's our hope. God both sees and he remembers. He didn't just see her. She was a humble wife. She was hurting. Yet she could still go to the God of all creation and pour out her heart to him. We saw that God cared. God calls and he sees. So what does this mean? What does it mean for us to now, in essence, embrace poverty? What does it mean for us to embrace poverty? And what I mean by that is to embrace a poverty of spirit. First thing that we see is we reach out to God in prayer. We reach out to God in prayer. Paul Miller says in his fantastic book on prayer, you never see a spiritual gift of prayer. Why? Because all of God's people are to, 
to be dependent on God in prayer. God, prayer becomes like breathing for the saints, Paul Miller says. Our very life uh, rhythms, our very life posture is to be in prayer. Now, as we learn to prayer, and a lot of times we want to approach prayer and learning in a place of strength. Let me learn how to, to pray these big, really impressive, theologically rich prayers. Now, there's a lot that's good about praying good theology, okay? I'm not bashing that. But ultimately, what prayer is doing is us being poor in spirit. It's us being children who are dependent upon the Father. And that's, that's ultimately what we're looking to do in prayer. Show our dependence, our need. One of the most dangerous things I think we can think we can do as believers is to, to think, well, this is too small of an issue. This is too flippant of an issue to go to God in prayer. What are, we, what are we trying to do? We're saying, I'm not poor. I don't need somebody. I don't need, we're, we're like the child who says, you know what, mom, dad, I don't need you to hold my hand now. I'll be fine for this. We're just going, we're just walking to the car. God says, no, in all things, hold my hand. Come to me in prayer. Trust in me. Trust God. Go to him. The, the, the second thing, and what does it mean to be impoverished? In part, and this is part and parcel with that. We go to God for all of our needs. Some people just say, hey, just your spiritual needs. And, and I certainly appreciate and understand that. But that's not, I don't think, being poor in spirit. We go to God for all needs. But here's the thing. We trust in God but we hold loose. So we, are, we hold tight to God in prayer, but we hold loose to the things of this world. A lot of people ask me, what's going on? She demands, or I shouldn't say demands, she asks God for Samuel, then as soon as she gets him, she just gives him away. What is that? Was she just, was she just looking for some sort of honor of saying, look, I had a child, now I'm good? In giving him away, she gave away really all that benefits that came from having a son, all the economic security, all the stability, all the inheritance rights. She, she gave it away. What's going on there? Some commentaries I read that were a little bit more pastoral love to say what she found is in this whole ordeal was that God was what she needed. I like that. That preaches well. I'm not 100% sure that's all that's there. But I do think and I do believe there is something that shows us that we hold on to things. It's not about us as God fulfills us. He's not wanting to make us dependent on his gifts for the source of our identity. But ultimately to find our dependence upon him. His grace and his mercy. Here's the, here's the third thing we do. What does it mean to be poverty, uh, embrace poverty? And this is communal. We see people and point them to Jesus. And what that means is we resist the urge to try to see, number one, we see people who are hurting. But in doing so, we don't try to 
be like Eli, where we assume that in their poverty, they're just bad people. Oh, this person's needed again. What are we doing? We're devaluing people's poverty of spirit. We're, de- we're devaluing people who are in need of grace. But here's the other thing that we have to watch out for when we see people. And that's like being Elkanah, where we want to step in and try to be people's savior. That's one of the things we talked about in the World Relief Seminar. We want to move in and we want to love and we want to just shower people with love. But we don't want to turn ourselves into saviors. We want to point them to the savior. But we don't want to turn them into savior. In doing so, what do we do? We devalue them so it's unhelpful for them, but it's also deeply unhelpful for us. Because what are we saying? We're saying we're the one you're dependent upon. We're the one who can provide what you need. That's dangerous mentally, emotionally, but it's especially dangerous spiritually. Because that puffs us up. Ultimately, what we do is when Samuel gets his discernment right, he assures the person who's hurting that they can find confidence in the God who is gentle and lowly. So we point them to Jesus. And then finally, we take our shame. We take our poverty directly to Jesus. God would be the one who would remove Hannah's shame in providing Samuel. God would be the one who would remove Israel's shame, at least temporarily, in providing the King David eventually. He would ultimately be the one who would be the greatest provision of all in Jesus Christ. Who upon the cross took all of the shame of the world upon himself. So that he who knew no sin became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. In other words, he who was rich in all glory and power equal with the Father emptied himself and took on the poverty of shame, sin upon himself and atoning for it on the cross. But he rose victorious. Our sense of shame will not be dealt with by trying to find provisions in this world, but it will only be dealt with when we become, seek to find ourselves justified by faith in Jesus Christ. In him alone. Trusting in his provision, in his king, in his redemption, and nothing else. I don't want to say, are you struggling with something of identity or struggling with wanting something, struggling with some sort of poverty? I know you are. I'm sorry. Steve, who I mentioned, is one of the most godly men I know, but yet he still struggles. The question is, when you seek to take every thought captive, what is your hope? What are you looking for to be that which fills that poverty? Is it an identity and a relationship with Jesus Christ? Is it a hope in God? Or is it something temporal 
that will, can just be removed today or tomorrow or the next. If you try to make it the things of this world, they will, you will collapse under the weight of their neediness or of their vacancy. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You can trust he will never leave you or forsake you. You can trust that he welcomes you and loves you, not because of who you are, because of who he is in Jesus Christ. Thank you.